0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello everyone, Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. I want to share with you seven tips that will help your friends who are suffering. I trust that these seven things will be very practical. In fact, you will benefit from them, of course, but also want to provide hope and help for you and for others, that is our tagline. And so I trust that you will take these seven tips and as you engage your friends who are going through Situational difficulties, relational problems, things that are happening to them, I trust that you will be able to serve them well with these seven tips that I'm going to give you. Before I get into it, though, I want to share some exciting news from our ministry. We have just released our first topical course. This is something that has been on my heart for many years now. It was probably 13, 14 years ago when we started our mastermind training. That is our massive program that teaches people how to do discipleship or biblical counseling. It is a two to four year course depending on uh, the pace that you have. But I also wanted to create topical courses, just singular standalone courses that people could take at their leisure on a varied uh, number of different topics, things that apply to our lives. And so I have just completed our first one, and it is on the universal condition of fear of man. All of us struggle with insecurity to varying degrees. Some people call it peer pressure. Others call it codependency. The Bible calls it fear of man, where we are managed by the Unwanted opinions of other people. Now, that is an awful thing. And some people really struggle more than others. And so I wanted to create something that would be a super practical tool that someone can do all online at their own pace. And it would be very practical to help them to overcome this problem. Now, who is this course for? Well, I titled it No More Fear Breaking Free from the Unwanted Opinions of Others. And it is for any counselor who's helping someone working through fear of man, any pastor for anyone in your church or a small group leader. It's really for any Christian who struggles with insecurity. Always concerned about what other people think about them. And so I trust that you would take this course. Uh, there's a link. Go to Courses. It's in the navigation bar at lifeovercoffee.com. Just click on Courses and you can get right to this course titled No More Fear. It's fully automated all online and so you can do it from your mobile phone, you can do it from a laptop desktop, you can do it in a coffee shop, you can do it at home. Now There are 20 videos inside this course. There are 20 audios inside this course. There is also a 30 page PDF downloadable uh, workbook that you can download, you can write on. And so there is a lot of reading, watching, and listening. And so you can pick whichever one. And it is a good long-term project. And it really gets to the root of this problem. And it gives you some practical solutions. You're going to love it. And so I would encourage you to Check out courses at lifeovercoffee.com. No more fear. Click on it. You can read all about it. And if you believe it's something for you, then just get it and do it. And that would be fantastic. All right. So I want to give you seven tips to help your friends who are suffering. Sometimes the words we share with our hurting friends are not the best ones. Albeit, I realize we can say them unwittingly. And I have said many unwitting words to people that really weren't the best words at the moment of their suffering. In fact, I wish that I could actually rewrite many of the scenarios in my youthful, zealous Christian life when I had more words than wisdom. I call it my ready-fire-aim approach to helping people. Saying the wrong thing is easy. And that's why I want to share with you these seven practical ideas to help you to navigate these challenging times with your suffering friends. And I trust that as you learn and practice these things, you will not succumb to unwise words or even inhibiting fear that prohibits redemptive communication. And your friends will appreciate your proactive care. And so it's not just saying the wrong thing. Sometimes many of us will succumb to the temptation of fear and we will not insert ourselves in a situation and be a friend to someone uh, who is struggling. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Funerals and weddings are some of the tensest and most self aware public moments that we can have. My friend Eddie, we went to school together, to college together back in the 80s. Still uh, friends today, loving the pieces. He lives in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And by the way, if you're ever in Hattiesburg, you need to go to uh, Ward's Burgers and get the biggin at Ward's Burgers. It comes with a, a glass frosty root beer, and it's the best hamburger ever made and so if you're in or around Hattiesburg Mississippi make sure you drop by Ward's and uh, it will be a memorable experience Eddie introduced me to Ward's by the way and uh, every time in in Hattiesburg I try to stop by and get one their their fabulous uh, hamburgers and and this promo is not uh, paid for by Ward's by the way So anyway, Eddie was performing his first funeral, and this was back in the 80s. He was a young preacher boy who was nervous about what he needed uh, to do for a grieving family. And so he did what we all do or would do. He led in prayer. And he said, Father, it is so good for us to be here today. Now, that was a big oops. It was the wrong prayer for the occasion. Eddie had pulled out his trusty... So good to be at our church meeting prayer rather than his don't-say-you're-glad-to-be-here funeral prayer. Have you ever done that? When the time called for prayer number 32 and you whipped out prayer number 47, there was nothing more for Eddie to do but to keep on praying, heads down, eyes shut, hoping that he could stealthily switch prayer tracks to bless everyone at that funeral rather than leaving them in shock or possibly anger. You have probably been on the regretful end of unredemptive communication. And though it was decades ago, you can retell the story just like it was yesterday. I have my stories too. Eddie's prayer story became humorous as time passed, but there are other moments when the things we say, especially during suffering, can create unhelpful memories that sting for quite a while. There are many illustrations of these pet sayings that pop out of our mouths before the brain tells us to read the room before you communicate, or as James said, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Perhaps nothing is more misguided during our grief than when we are too quick on the draw with the all things work together for good line. It's not that Romans 8.28 is inappropriate. It's not. It's a fantastic verse, but its timing can make all the difference in the world. I remember when one of my friends pulled out his 8.28 bullet during the darkest season of my suffering And though I did not say this to him audibly, I wanted to come back with, has it ever occurred to you that I do not want all things to work out for good? I want my family to return home, my wife and two children. I know that what I want and what the Lord has given me right now are not the same, but I cannot get on with the Lord's plans. I want my agenda right now. I want my family back. You see, when the hurt is that deep, we can dismiss sound theological judgment because we want a quick fix. I was wanting a quick fix. Sound theological judgment does say that all things work together for good. But I was looking for the early exit, not whatever is in the mind of God about what was happening to me. I was hurting. Now, I'm not excusing how my theology was wrong. It was way off the rails. I'm not excusing my bad attitude toward my friend as he embarrassingly holstered his gospel gun with his one-spent 828 round. It was not his fault. But he learned at that moment that sometimes it might be Be best to give your struggling friends a broader berth to work out their salvation imperfectly. I mean, what other option do we have except to develop our relationship with the Lord imperfectly when things are falling apart all around us? Though friends don't let friends go off the theological rails, we must give them room to wobble especially during times of crisis. I mean, the goal is to be like Jesus, but can I be honest with you here? Being like Jesus can be too high of a bar when we wallow in the depths of suffering. When it comes to doing things wrong, probably the most criticized people in the Bible for giving inadequate counsel are Job's friends. Now, it does bother me just a little bit with the criticism that they receive Because I'm not sure that we, or maybe I should say especially me, could do much better than Job's friends. And so I feel for his friends in a similar way that I feel for Adam. I mean, who wants to be known as the guy who messed up the world? Imagine if we called it the fall of Rick in in the garden rather than the fall of Adam. We're all in this mess because of Rick. We would no longer be Adamic people, but we would be Ricket people. I wonder what it will be like as we walk by Adam in heaven. Or what about Job's friends? Branding and identifying people for their mistakes is easy to do. What if we leveled the playing field by assessing our competence to bring quality soul care to a man who lost his children, lost his cattle, lost his livelihood like Job. What would your counsel be to our old friend Job? How would you walk him through his ordeal? Would you say the wrong thing, or would you succumb to the temptation of fear and not talk to him at all? When you see Job sitting across the room at your church meeting, do you just ignore him because you let fear take hold of your heart, Because you don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, if we continue to care for people, it's inevitable that we're going to provide inadequate guidance in the future, especially when we must come alongside our suffering friends. I mean, what are our choices? Don't say anything. Never helping anyone. Please do not succumb to that fear. Or do we step into these moments trusting God while knowing that, well, we might not wordsmith the problem correctly? I do not have an exhaustive list of helpful ideas for you, but I I believe that these seven things will serve you as you interact with your friends through their situational challenges. Now, what I hope is that you will add a few things to my list uh, once we are done here. All right, so let's start with number one. Seven things, practical things to help your suffering friends. Number one, no S word. Now, perhaps your struggling friend did sin somehow, and maybe your struggling friend is reaping personal suffering because of his sin. It does happen. If your friend did wrong and he's reaping from his transgressive sowing, There will be a time to talk to him about the repercussions of his sinful actions and also a pathway to repentance. But we want to pace ourselves. By working a biblical sequence, a linkage that ensures the sufferer is in the right place to reflect on what you're saying and to be able to take action for what he did, bringing up his sin, the S-word, as a first call to action could prove to be careless more often than not. Of course, it could be that there was no sin committed, like in Job's case, Now, if he did not sin, then doing what Job's friends did, what they eventually did to him, is wildly inappropriate. They were giving him terrible counsel, for the most part. The most important S-word to think about during suffering is suffering. That's the S-word you want to think about. What if you hug the sufferer and tell him that you are there for him? Now think about this. Being there is where Job's friends got it right. They did well by being there initially and not saying anything. They silently sat with their friend. The text says it this way in 2.13, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends got it right in that moment. Seven practical things to help your friends who are suffering. Number one, no S word. The S word is sin. There is a time and place to talk about that, but not initially. Number two, be with them. You see, Job's friends were wise. Being there can make all the difference in the world. There is something sacred and holy about being with another image bearer during their time of suffering. God with us. That's what we we read in Matthew 1. By the way, in Genesis 39, it says that God was with Joseph. Now remember the context there. Uh, That is when Joseph was right at the height of his suffering down in Egypt, and the text says God. God was with Joseph. Those two words, with Joseph, are just absolutely profound. And God with us is a significant aspect of the gospel. It's something beautiful that we want to imitate uh, imitate with our suffering friends. Be with them. That's point number two. My friend Randy was Jesus to me just that way. The painful reality of what was happening was rolling over me as the bad news was rolling in. Late one night, Randy knocked on my door. He, he said he was not sure why he came other than the Lord placed me in his heart. He hardly said anything else to me that night. I was hysterical. Randy was quiet. And though it was 1988, I am still comforted by his presence that evening. It had to be an awful scene for him. As I was pounding my fist against the brown-paneled walls, he was on his knees pleading with the Lord, and I was walking around pleading, and let's just say I was pleading in a different kind of way. His approach was more sacred than what I was doing, though having him there did put a governor on my discombobulated heart and out-of-control tongue. Randy was with me, a stable and steady soul, comforting a hysterical friend with his quiet presence. Point number one, no S word. Point number two, be with them. The third thing that you can use to help your suffering friends is, I'm going to call this story mappers. And what I mean by that, don't do that. Too often in our effort to relate to others, we begin telling them our stories. Let me tell you about my experience. Imagine sharing a wonderful memory with a friend and in their desire to connect with you, they override your story. Telling you about their fantastic experience. Let me tell you about my trip to Disney World. Well, you just quietly set aside whatever you are anxious to share, and you go ahead and make it all about them since they are making it all about them. Now, there can be a place to connect to another person with your life's narrative, but it is more important to dive into their story and listening to their suffering, whatever it may be. Sometimes you will hear this when people say, I know how you feel, and then they launch into their experiences. The truth is, the comforter does not know how you feel, not precisely. Personal suffering is unique to each person, and the Lord uniquely relates to each of His children uniquely. It is impossible to accurately know how they feel or what they think because there are too many variables. By the way, this is one of the reasons that people will disqualify themselves, step back, stand back, and not say anything to them because they are aware that they don't know how they feel. But again, that is not the right response. And so rather than mapping your story over their story, the most important thing to do is to find out what they think about their situation. By the way, if you struggle with that fear that you're not engaging, just step into their story and ask them, what is going on? What do you think? How do you feel? As appropriate and when suitable, you begin to draw the hurting person out. Try to understand how the Lord may be relating to them. Listen to their suffering. There's a lot to learn. And guard your heart against mapping your experience over their experience. If you don't guard your tongue, you may begin to give tips that work for you while missing the things the Lord wants the other person to hear and do. Here's the key idea. He's writing a story in their lives, and that is not your story. Number three, story mappers. Don't be that person. Number four, give them room. Nobody suffers perfectly. While Randy was with me, he could not console me. The news I had learned cut deep into my soul. My heart was bursting as I wrestled with the breaking of human trust. Randy discerned this, and he gave me space and time to be imperfect. Giving imperfect people room to wobble can be wise. Expecting them to respond with Christ-likeness is expecting too much and can burden them to be what they can never be at that moment. Perhaps you have had this experience. The pain was too much or the disappointment too deep. You knew what to do, but it was a bridge too far at that moment. Now, I am not making a case for allowing a person to sin. But it may be possible for you to overlook what they are doing, especially if it is an episode rather than a pattern. You must consider their trajectory. Do they want to do good? I mean, is that who they are? But they are struggling right now. Would you characterize their life as someone who wants to follow Jesus in his steps? If so, they will spring back into his steps soon enough. Be wise, be patient, be with them. That horrible night was a unique one for me in 1988, and it has been many years since, and I have yet to walk through my house again, beating my fist into the walls again. Randy gave me room to wobble. Number five, remind them of God. Now, hopefully you will have the opportunity to begin realigning their theology, especially their theology of suffering. Nobody wants to suffer, and everyone does, Christian and non-Christian. But the difference in how Christians suffer is that we suffer with hope but hope seems to escape when the things are the darkest. And so carefully realigning the sufferer's heart to the light of the gospel is a gift that will set them on a new trajectory and teach them how to suffer well. If you know them and you're not planning on popping in and popping off with your 828 bullet, then do not refrain from giving them sound biblical wisdom like Romans 828 at the right time. You see, it's not that the text is wrong, but the timing could be. They must hear that our good Lord is sovereign and He is working good in their lives. Now, more than likely, your friend will already know this, though he may not have this at the top of his mind at the moment of his suffering as he is bottoming out. And so guard against coming up with something new, and that is a temptation, by the way. Sufferers do not need anything new. They need something old, something tried, something true. They need to hear the trustworthy gospel message again and again, one of the most excuse me, one of the most effective ways to connect with an individual is by speaking to their understanding and experience, speaking to what they already know. It's already in their mind, and so you just want to connect with what they already know. The Lord does not need our sophisticated theological nuance in a new way. Be plain, be clear, be simple. Tell them about God. That's number five. Number six, give them hope. God's word brings hope and help to the hurting soul. Talk to them plainly about the greatness of our God and the counterintuitiveness of his ways. By the way, it is rare for a suffering a suffering believer to say, Wow, I, I, I've never heard that before. There are times when disciplers want to be new, creative, and inventive, as though they fear being redundant. I'm just giving them an unsophisticated, simple message about that guy who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. I mean, where's modernity? Uh, there's a new way. No, no, don't fall for that temptation, and don't fear being redundant, saying the same things to everyone they meet that's going through a crisis, that's okay. Imagine trying to create different ways to change a tire. The saying is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's nothing broken about the gospel. And it doesn't need our fixing. We don't need to put a new and improved label, slap it on the side of it as though that's going to be better. No, we can't improve on the old gospel message. Don't fear being redundant. Tell them the old story in their new suffering. More than likely, they will say, there is nothing you have told me that I did not already know. Praise God. I would hope that would be the case. Imagine how hard it would be if they told you if you told them things about God that they did not know. Tabula rasa, that there was a blank slate that they had no idea about who God is. Well, in that case, you would have to build a theological foundation for them. You'd have to create a doctrinal construct for them to stand upon while caring for their soul at the same time. That is too arduous, And it's much more challenging than reminding Christians of truths they already had a familiarity with because of their former associations. And then finally, number seven, pray with them. Now, I know prayer is assumed, but you should not overlook it. You should not underrate it. It's not a tack-on at the end of a meeting as though it was a routine Christian expectation. Prayer is the most powerful way to engage the sovereign Lord, the one who is behind all the sufferings that we experience. Now, prayer does many things. For example, it acknowledges that the Lord is Lord and we are not. But there must be more than knowing god is god especially if the sufferer is broken but not humbled for example and there is a difference some people can be broken but not humbled the broken person can sit in the dust of his catastrophe acknowledging that god is god while still relying on himself while still trying to extricate himself through this mess in his own strength but the humble person who is broken Is different than the self-reliant broken person. He can sit in the same place, but humbly acknowledge his need for the Almighty. And as he prays, he takes action steps to that good end. And with that kind of humility comes empowering favor from the Lord. The man who can pray with open hands and no hidden expectations sets himself up for God to impose himself into the suffering. This kind of prayer-filled attitude softens the heart, which gives shape to the Father's will to grow inside us rather than our agendas. The only way that Jesus could index forward in the Garden of Gethsemane was to do His Father's will, and the way that He did that was through the portal of prayer. Prayer also creates a Trinitarian koinonia, community, between the Lord, the sufferer, and you. When you three are in communion together, it is one of the most intimate things you can do. In addition, it's the only way that you and the sufferer can access God's strength for the moment. Now, what I have communicated here are just a few ways that might help... (coughs) Excuse me, are just a few ways that might help those who are that you are serving as they walk, as you walk with them through their suffering. I have not given you a formula, please understand. What I've given you are tools that you may use or you may not use. Each situation is different. The Spirit can move you differently, and discerning the Spirit is one of the keys you will need when you step into a unique suffering opportunity. Now, I trust that you will add other things that you want to use when these moments arise. And so please uh, keep the list open-ended, ad infinitum. Another key thought is that you must do something. Who who has the Lord put in their heart? Uh, Who has the Lord put in your heart? And what is something that you should do for them today? Today. Or this week. You see, the nature of the gospel is going, doing, moving, acting, loving, giving, serving, and helping. To do nothing when a person is hurting, well, that is another gospel. Not the one the Savior modeled for us. We must go to those hurting and seek to enter into their pain. My friend Eddie might not have had the perfect prayer opening, but he was willing to go, willing to care. He was willing to give what he had for a hurting family. Randy did not know what to do, but he did something. Would he do do it differently the next time? I mean, probably. I would assume so. It's been 30 plus years he's matured. I remember my early counseling sessions. I was so unsure, but I cared deeply for those struggling. All caring Christians are this way when they began. We want to know... We want to know how it will turn out before we step off that boat and walk on water. Well, faith does not operate that way. God provides faith as we step out of our boats. The moment of activated faith and our actions are invisible to us. I've just given you seven tips to help your friends who are suffering. I want to wrap this up by asking you a few questions, and hopefully it will stir you up to think and to go and do. Now, I ask, who needs your care? Perhaps someone came to your mind. I hope so. Will you write down their name? There's something about writing down the name, the physical process of putting their name on paper or putting it on a computer. Will you ask God to give you insight into how to care for that person? Will you make a plan? to speak with them soon. Number two, how strong is the temptation to self-reliance versus God-reliance? The self-reliant person wants to know the outcome before he embarks on the path. The God-reliant person trusts God as he takes steps down the path. And so if you know someone who is suffering, you will not know the outcome of the conversation that you're about to have with them. Don't be self-reliant. Be God-reliant. Step into it and trust God to give you the words that you need and to take that relationship just a little bit deeper. Number three, do you believe you have to get to a specific level of Christian maturity before you can care for the hurting? Now, if you answer yes to my question, then... I want you to answer this one. Would you discourage the woman at the well who had just met Jesus about 30 seconds ago and could not refrain from telling all of those in the town who were caught in captivity how to be free? You see, she didn't know a lot. She knew virtually nothing. But she was walking by faith, and so she stepped into the moment. The question is, do you believe that you have to get to a specific level of Christian maturity before you can care for the hurting? Number four, who was a person that cared for you when you were hurting? Perhaps they did not say it the right way. Maybe they didn't do it the right way, but they cared about you. What if you contact them, let them know how much you appreciate them reaching out to you? Again, this is seven tips to help your friends who are suffering. Don't forget about our course, our topical course, No More Fear, How to Overcome the Fear of Man. Go to the course link in the navigation bar, click on it, and it will tell you all about it. And if it's a good fit for you, go ahead and take it. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.